Hey, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. I am not with Crystal physically in the room today. This is only, I think, the second time that this has happened, and we've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Right? Over, over 50 weeks. Throughout the pandemic, and to only, you know, have a few little interruptions. This one by choice. Yeah, last one was uh, Nina Turner, was when I wasn't there. I don't remember why, but yeah, I wasn't there for that. And uh, another phenomenal guest today. Apparently, we got a streak going with uh, phenomenal guests when I'm not physically in studio, but Chris Hedges <laughs> is going to be with us today. I mean, let's and be honest. All of our guests are phenomenal, so. Very true. Very true. Um, I went back and watched some Chris Hedges stuff the other day, and uh, man, that guy spits fire. He tells the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Consequences of that be damned. Um, I've been reading his new book, Our Class, which is a wonderful book about his time teaching uh, in a prison and what that experience was like. So lots and lots to get into with him. Yeah. Another interesting thing I noticed about him, there are not many people. I don't know if he has like a daily podcast or like a weekly podcast or anything, but there's very few people who don't have that who pull like really amazing numbers. And he's one of them. So he's saying things that are so interesting that even if he goes into the wilderness for like a year and comes out, people are like, I want to hear what that guy has to say. So a lot of a lot of good stuff to get to with him. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about this clip that popped up on my Twitter feed. Now, I will admit, and I don't think you saw it either. I haven't seen it. I just saw the text in the tweet. So you're really getting like a first time reaction here from you and me. It's about Elon Musk is on some random podcast, forgive me for not knowing the name or caring, uh, and he said something that's pretty silly. And I was wondering if you could decipher this tweet of yours for me, because I'm not a programmer. He wrote, trace route woke underscore mind underscore virus. What does that mean? Um, okay, so trace route is um, a networking uh, command to, uh, so if you, if you want to, figure out a path to a particular server or, or domain, uh, you'd say traceroute, or in Windows, traceRT. Uh, that would show you the path to a particular uh, source server, um, either an IP address or domain name. And, and it, it would show you all, basically all the hops that, that it goes through, um, and the, the latency between each, each hop. And so... I know some of those words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so trace route would be yeah would be like where did it come from yeah where did the virus come from what is its origin so did this work did this command work yeah, or you, did you find you could read the comments <laughs> read the, the comments, comments and see you. and see right. it, it is a prevalent mind virus and um, arguably one of the biggest threats to monetization okay so <laughs> so that was really weird it's a little um, hard to follow it is hard to follow but. Apparently, at the beginning, he says woke underscore something something. And then yeah, at the end... so they're asking him to decipher a tweet. And apparently, the tweet said trace route woke underscore mind underscore virus. And what he explains is that trace route is a technical programmer, you know, person way of saying, like, where did this come from? Um, so he's saying, where did this woke mind virus come from? And then he goes on to say he believes it to be arguably one of the biggest threats to modern civilization. Yeah. So let's let, let me dive into that, because I'm getting super annoyed with this line of thinking. There are some people who are just permanently stuck in the year 2014 and can't break free of it. Um, <laughs> listen, I am second to nobody in criticizing what I think is 
the excesses of cancel culture or wokeness. You know, I'm very, uh, not very famously, because I don't know how many views the video has, maybe 80,000 or something like that, but I've defended Ann Coulter for being protested at uh, some college campus. I thought she had a right to speak. Same with Ben Shapiro. Um, so this is something that I, I have talked about and I do think is important, and I don't like the authoritarian strain on the left, and I don't like the authoritarian strain on the right. Now, the point that these people seem to always miss is that there's also cancel culture on the right. I've been through it a million times, but the mm -hmm. best example is the original cancel culture story of the Dixie Chicks. They had their careers absolutely ruined because they said the Iraq war is bad and they came out against George W. Bush. And the list goes on and on. Uh, Little Nas X with the Satan shoe. And then the governor of uh, North Dakota came out and said, well, he should be canceled over this when she positioned herself as I'm the anti-cancel culture person. I can go on and on and on. Well, the Chicks mind... live long enough to be canceled by both sides, right? They get I, canceled I, by the right and then they, you know, change their name from Dixie Chicks to the Chicks, so... It all yeah. comes around. Okay. I was unaware of that. And uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't really care. I think it's stupid no matter where it's coming from. But to say that this is one of the biggest threats to modern civilization might literally be the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, stop and look at the landscape right now. So we have climate change. Anybody with a functioning brain and eyes sees that this catastrophe and this apocalyptic scenario is speeding up right in front of us. I mean whether it's an increase in extreme weather events, tornado alley shifting, and all of a sudden in December we're getting tornadoes in, uh, what state was it? Kentucky. Kentucky. And Illinois. We, I mean, it was across five different states. Five different states. We got 65-degree days in Washington, D.C. in late December. I mean, it, so climate change is one thing that's very apocalyptic. Now, if you think, oh, whatever, it's warmer, who cares? Well, when there's wars over water, you're going to care, mm -hmm. okay? So that's one thing. The other thing is, now we're talking the threat of World War Three and a nuclear war, I think, is real as a heart attack because you have Joe Biden and uh, Vladimir Putin on a, with a tense standoff in Ukraine. And in the nuclear age, we can't afford a World War Three, because if you have a World War Three, it's game set match on all of us. Millions of people die in a war. And then you have a nuclear winter after that. And these things, the idea that like we're safe, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure they thought that before World War One. And I'm sure they thought that before World War Two. After World War One, people thought we're never going to do this again. And then World War Two came around. So this idea, everybody's complacent. Everybody's relaxed. Everything's like, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Look, we're ruled by idiots. And Idiots do idiotic things, and sometimes that escalates, and sometimes you end up having a hot war. We cannot afford that in the nuclear age. We cannot afford these tensions over Ukraine. We cannot afford uh, people going on MSNBC or CNN and saying, I wouldn't take a nuclear strike on Russia off the table. We can't afford idiots going on Tucker Carlson and saying, I want to sit on the throne of Chinese skulls, and this is something that's going on right now. Another uh, issue, which is probably the biggest issue because it affects all other issues, is the political corruption that we have in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean— you have a government that's just flat out an oligarchy and a kleptocracy and it serves corporate interests and it serves billionaires. And, you know, you have half of working people in this country making $30,000 a year or less. You have 27 million people without health insurance. You have medical bills at the top cause of bankruptcy. These are the real concerns to people who are serious, who are following these stuff and who are working, who are regular people. Now, Elon Musk likes to fancy himself some sort of man of the people or whatever. Are you kidding me? Now, the other day he went on Twitter and he said something along the lines of, in case you were wondering, I'm paying $11 billion in taxes. <laughs> now, the whole point of that is supposed to be like, this is ridiculous. This is government overreach. Don't you feel bad for me? No, I don't, because you made $36 billion in one day not too long ago. Your net worth is $261 billion. By the way, a few years ago, ProPublica came out with that report. He paid an, a, a true tax rate of about 3%, not that long ago. Then he learned about 
the the tax avoidance scheme of buy, borrow, and die, and he paid zero taxes a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And so when he comes out and says, I paid $11 billion in taxes, you're not making your point. You're making our point. Am I supposed to feel bad that you're sitting on $250 billion worth of wealth? We're supposed to sit there and say, oh, poor Elon Musk. And what does he do? Deflects the conversation away and goes right to the woke mind virus is the right. biggest problem facing modern civilization. Your head is up your ass. But you know what? I love it because social media and new media is now giving us this ability to see how dumb and out of touch the elites are. And that's exactly what's going on with Elon Musk. Nobody would have known that this guy who's a billionaire is a colossal idiot unless he came out there and reminded us of it every day. And with the democratization and everybody having a voice and uh, you know social media being what it is, he reminds us every day that that's exactly what he is. I haven't honestly listened to a lot of Elon Musk interviews. He's also he was also like fairly inarticulate in that moment. Is that consistent, or is that is he normally more so able to I've express seen, himself? I listened to him when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and it yeah. was very clear to me that he's not the best communicator. Okay. And what's funny is that his stands view that as actually like a sign of deep intelligence. Yeah. A sign of deep intelligence because they think, well, maybe he's he's just operating on a different level and right. He's he's either you know on the spectrum or whatever, or I'm sure. Uh, He's a savant, and so his brain, like, like even Joe Rogan thinks, like, oh, his brain works in a way that normal people's brains don't work. And I remember Joe asking him, like, well, what's it like to be you? And he's like, it's crazy. My mind never stops. <laughs> Bro, you're like a 14-year-old Reddit shit poster. You got $4.9 billion in government subsidies as yeah. you decry government overreach or whatever the fuck. And your daddy had, like, an emerald mine or a diamond mine or some shit in South Africa. I don't want to hear it. You were sure, born that was on very, run very you honorably. Trump. He's exactly like Donald Trump in that sense. You You know, know, what it reminded me of um, listening to him and to that extremely terrible take, which, you know, he has many terrible political takes. It kind of reminded me of when um, Ben Carson started his presidential campaign, because here's someone who is, you know, in the medical field, a legitimate genius, you know, did things that were extraordinarily groundbreaking, was celebrated for them, you know, really on on a plane by himself in that field of neurology. And then when it comes to politics, he's just, you know, everything that he thinks about it is completely stupid and wrong. And it sort of reminded me of that. Like, listen, I could believe that Elon is a genius at certain things that he does. That doesn't mean that his takes on politics are gonna be right or profound or good or worth listening to in any way. And so that was one of the things that I was thinking about. I mean, obviously you lay out the total absurdity with everything that's going on, climate change, democracy crisis, poverty, famine, war, that you would think that wokeness was arguably the biggest uh, threat to civilization, the biggest problem of our time, it's just totally ludicrous and absolutely insane. Um, You know, the other thing that's really interesting here is that I don't understand why people people who criticize elites in a lot of ways and then they don't see how some of the people that they lionize and revere are also part of that class. And he is very much part of that class. So his whole thing about, oh, well, I paid, you know, 11 billion or whatever it was in taxes. The point isn't what you deign to pay this year. It's that we shouldn't be dependent on the benevolence of a class of overlords to fund basic public services. That's the problem. And if you don't understand that, like clearly you're not the genius as advertised. 
It, okay, and not only that, the $11 billion in taxes, if you actually crunch the numbers on it, is a lower percentage than somebody who makes like $400,000 a year, some surgeon, some doctor, some attorneys, probably somebody who makes $250,000 a year. It's a lower percentage. It goes back to the old thing Warren Buffett challenged all CEOs in America to do. He was like, if you can show me you pay a higher tax rate as a percentage than your secretaries do who make $80,000 a year, $60,000 a year, I'll give you a million dollars of my own money. And nobody was able to collect because they don't. They have an army of lawyers and lobbyists and whatever, and they find all these loopholes, some legal, some not. And Elon Musk does the same thing. And just because the raw number sounds like a lot, all of a sudden, you know, his stands are like, oh, God, you're paying so much in taxes. My heart bleeds for you, billionaire who barely has a problem on this fucking planet. Are you what kidding did, me? Compare his problems to some other people's problems. What did you think about uh, time making him person of the year, most influential person of the year? So, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's really silly, but on the other hand, they don't, there's no value judgment associated with being person of the year. So right. it's not like they're saying this is a good person. They made Hitler person of the year one year. Right. So, you know, I don't really care that much. But yeah, when I first saw it, I rolled my eyes. And I, I honestly, to be to be fair, I even rolled my eyes when I saw Simone Biles was the athlete of the year. Yeah. Like, okay, I get that you sat out. I'm not saying I want to force you to go in there and do it, but you sat out. You sat out. That's like making Tiger Woods athlete of the year when he, when he, his leg was shattered and he was laying in bed all year. Yeah. He's not the athlete of the year. He was laying in bed. Yeah. So I just think it it, it is it's still it, funny enough. It's almost like that's the sort of like political correctness mm. and wokeness to put to put Simone Biles there and Elon Musk there, and that's the same sort of shit that Elon decries. But it's like, are you really person of the year, or are you just like you bought you know you got a, a bunch of stands and a huge Twitter following, and so now you're I main mean, person of the year. I, I actually correctness. I think there's a decent case to be made for him being most influential person of the year, just because I think there's a decent case for the richest person on the planet to be most influential person of the year every year, just because money is so determinative. There is no doubt. And especially in a year when, you know, billionaires saw their wealth skyrocket. I don't think it's crazy to say, well, this guy who's on top of all the billionaires is the most influential person of the year. But my bottom line on all of this is, you know, as people who are critical of the sort of overly woke and the obsession with that and the cancellation of people and the lack of forgiveness and the censorship and, and those sorts of like directions that you see both on the right and the left, this is so profoundly unhelpful because it's so caricaturish. And there are too many, far too many people who use their critique of wokeness to mask all of the other much, much larger problems that are going on. A perfect example of that, um, Kyle, you mentioned that Tucker segment where that dude, Jesse Kelly, was like, the problem with our military is wokeness and we need guys who want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. That whole segment, the, the topic of it was the problem of wokeness in the military. Okay, not the problem of like, you know, <laughs> lying to us for decades in Afghanistan, not the problem of drone strikes, mass killing civilians and people lying. No, no, not those problems. The problem of wokeness in the military was what they were exercised about this evening. So, again, um, and look, in fairness to Tucker, he has been critical of some of the other excesses of the military, but oftentimes it's used as a critique to mask other bigger problems that are going on. And it ultimately makes people who do have, you know, what I would consider to be a reasoned and nuanced taken critique of overwokeness. It makes everybody easy to caricature and put in a like your silly and ridiculous category. Yeah, and allow me to respond real quick on the Tucker point. No, no credit to Tucker. You lose all your anti-war credibility when you have somebody on who's advocating something that's flat-out genocidal. Yes. You want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls? Imagine he said, I want to sit on a throne of Jewish skulls. How would everybody react? 
No, so there no, no, no anti-war credit. I don't give a fuck if you if you signal to it in some respects and then you turn around and you're giggling as somebody's advocating something genocidal on your show, all under the guise of wokeness is bad. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do a segment on the military budget? How about that? We spend more than the next twelve biggest countries combined, and most of them are our allies. We have about nine hundred military bases around the world. We just spent seven to eight trillion dollars over a decade, and nobody made a peep about how much that's going to add to the debt or that's going to add to the deficit. But then when it comes to Build Back Better, which is less than two trillion now, it's like, oh, the deficit, the mm-hmm. debt, we can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And then, so beyond that, I just want to go back to something you said. Um, about person of the year, I get your argument. I think it's a reasonable argument, but I would say either Joe Manchin and or Kirsten Cinema should be person of the year because they're really the president. They are the president and they can control uh, everything that happens in Washington because the Democrats are weak and feckless and corrupt. And then so you're, the Democratic Party is only as good as its most conservative members. And as we've learned, their most conservative members are Republican light or just Republican. And so I would say that they're probably uh, people, uh, persons of the year because what do they do? They blocked any and all. I mean, the original $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, you had universal pre-K, you had child care, you had elder care, you had Medicare expansion, you had lower prescription drug prices. They took one look at that and said, no, I'd rather serve my donors. So they went with them. But Um, Kyle, Kamala Harris told me that Joe Biden is the president and her name is Kamala Harris and she's the vice president. So there you go. Yeah. Let's not get off on a side tangent here. But anyway. (laughs) All um, right. Let's get to our guest um, because we want to talk to Chris Hedges about a lot. As we mentioned before, he's author of a new book. It's called Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison former foreign correspondent for The Times. This man has covered wars in war zones. He's written wonderful books. He's been incredible active. The thing I admire most about Chris is that he has lived his values to the point that it has, you know, cost him his career at points, that it has literally put his life in danger at points. And I don't know how you can't respect someone who's willing to live his values like that. So with all that being said, let's get right to Chris. Chris Hedges, thank, blah, blah, blah. Chris Hedges, thanks so much for joining us. It's very weird that I'm a professional talker and I don't know how to talk. Um, <laughs> so there's so much stuff I want to ask you. I've actually went on uh, quite a binge of your your uh, your interviews and whatnot over the past few days. And man, you're a very, very thoughtful guy. Um, so let me start with something that's actually pretty broad because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. So I, I've said publicly a number of times that I actually think Trump is the favorite for the next presidential election. Um, Now, do you think that he, since he already governed for four years and he was just a standard establishment Republican in many respects, that he blew his sort of pseudo populist credibility and he just morphed into like a Fox News grandpa? Or do you think that, you know, since Biden and the Democrats are so bad and they're under delivering so much that it almost doesn't even matter that Trump became a Fox News grandpa, he could just win by default? Uh, Well, they're probably both true. Uh, I think you have to look at Trump not as a political figure, but as a cult leader. Uh, And when you look at Trump as a cult leader, then everything makes sense. It doesn't make sense if you uh, confine him within the rubric of the traditional political establishment or political figure. Demagogues who are primarily cult leaders who build a cult of personality are different animals within the political system and different rules apply to them. Uh, In a cult, you can go back and read how cults work. I actually read a lot about cults when I did my book, American Fascist, the Christian Right and the War on America, which was written about a decade ago. And I took a lot of heat for that title. Uh, I think people 
have now seen how dangerous that movement is, how it is primarily a political movement. The connecting tissue on January 6th was this Christian fascism. And then as, as, just as a caveat, I graduated, my father was a Presbyterian minister. I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. And a few years ago, because of the, my work in prisons, was actually even ordained. It's not something I wear on my sleeve, but these people are heretics. Uh, and they are about the achievement of power and the sacralization of the worst aspects of American capitalism, imperialism, uh, white supremacy. Uh, and, uh, and, and so within these megachurches, uh, these figures function as cult leaders. They are in touch with God. They can't be questioned. Uh, and they pray at, in the same way Trump did with his sham university and his casinos and everything else on the despair of largely the white uh, uh, working poor, uh, working class that has been shunted aside uh, through deindustrialization and austerity. A lot of things that, of course, Biden was uh, front and center in terms of pushing NAFTA, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so cult leaders, uh, when, you, when you follow a cult leader, uh, you want your cult leader to be omnipotent. You want your cult leader to defy uh, all of the rules because the more powerful the cult leader becomes, uh, this is all from Margaret Singer's study of cults, uh, the more powerful the cult leader becomes, in a sense, because you are invested in that cult leader, the more powerful uh, you become. Uh, so uh, I, I think that Trump does function for a pretty large segment of that, uh, of, of that MAGA electorate as a cult figure. Uh, and that's why it, it, uh, it, it, you're right, of course, he did, he catered to, uh, as the Democrats do, but perhaps even more egregiously to the most retrograde forces of American capitalism. Uh, but at that point, it, it doesn't matter because what he's doing is belittling, often in very crude and vulgar terms, uh, that quote unquote polite establishment uh, that uh, has told lies uh, as, you know, as, uh, as uh, egregious or as, as, uh, as frequent as the lies Trump told, but lies that have really destroyed lives that have had a far greater impact. So uh, it's, it'll either be Trump or a Trump-like figure. Uh, it's pretty clear the Republican Party uh, remains dominated by Trump. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I agree. I, I think uh, uh, the Democrats, because they will not confront their corporate donors, are essentially uh, uh, unable to respond to the economic and political social crisis that is gripping the country, feeding the kind of anger, rage, and frustration. Uh, and we should also say feeding the apathy of uh, those uh, quote unquote liberal groups that invested in Biden uh, and the Democratic Party and are betrayed once again. Yeah. What are some of the signs um, that you saw that made you think, oh, this guy's a cult leader. And then um, based on history and what research has shown, what has been effective to defang cult leaders? Well, that's a very good question. And that's a question that I asked myself during the two years that I wrote that book on uh, American fascists. And I've always looked at the Christian right as a political movement. Uh, it's uh, upends the core messages of the gospel. Jesus did not come to make us rich. Jesus would not bless the dropping of iron fragmentation bombs throughout the Middle East. Uh, I mean, Jesus was a pacifist, first of all. 
so and and I struggled with that uh, because you you can't rationally talk these people back into the system. Uh, it, it is it is a system of economic, social, and political that has almost destroyed them. And I don't use that word lightly. Uh, when you look at the pathologies that are rippling across the country, the opioid crisis, suicides, which are highest among middle-aged white men, uh, gambling addictions, uh, I'm a strong opponent of pornography, sexual sadism, uh, hate groups. The, a sociologist, Emil Durkheim, writes that those who seek the annihilation of others are driven by desires for self-annihilation. Uh, and these uh, pathologies are the cause, again, we'll go to Durkheim, and then my last book, America the Farewell Tour, uh, kind of examined this in depth, but it's the rupturing of those social bonds, the lo loss of place within a society uh, that has driven people to carry out these very self-destructive acts, both as individuals and collectively. Uh, and that's something that Durkheim uh, kind of chronicled or documented very well in his study on suicide uh, written uh, in about 1898 or something. So uh, the only way I, I came to the conclusion, and I write this at the end of my book, American Fascists, the only way to counter uh, these kind of cultish groups that are all about magical thinking, that have divorced themselves from rational society, uh, is to reintegrate these people back into the society, give them a place, a sense of security, a sense of uh, dignity, uh, and of course the opposite has happened. Uh, and that's why the very tepid uh, attempt on the part of the Biden administration uh, to perhaps address that malaise, and I would say, again, not very effectively, even that now is going up in smoke. So yeah. uh, for that reason, I'm very pessimistic about what's to come. Mm. So uh, I, I agree with your entire analysis there. One of the things I struggle with is determining, so where's the line in terms of reaching out to genuinely disaffected working class voters who might may even be on the right and may even be hard right socially in some respects, whether it's on immigration or other issues, where's the line between let's build a big tent that's actually a populist working class tent focused on the issues that affect us all? And what crosses that line? So, you know, do you ally with people who are hardcore, anti-abortion, anti-immigration. So in other words, is there, a, is there a, an alliance that can be made between the populist left and the populist right uh, focused on economics that really can make a dent and move us more in a New Deal, FDR-style direction? Uh, there is no populist left. Uh, the populist left has retreated into a boutique kind of activism around identity politics and woke culture and uh, you know, Maoist kind of control of speech and mistaken that for politics. That's anti-politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the left is committing suicide. Um, in terms of the populist right, uh, I think that the only hope is to build alliances, and you're right that that is the solution, to build in terms of re-empowering uh, a disenfranchised uh, working class is to build alliances around specific issues. For instance, the Kellogg strike, uh, mm. the attempt to uh, unionize Walmart or Amazon, 
you know, it's interesting. I've taught now in the prison, and uh, I know Crystal's looked at my new book about this, uh, for over a decade. So I'm finally getting these students who are brilliant students. Uh, this is through Rutgers. So they get their college degree. A lot of my students graduate summa cum laude, which is hard mm -hmm. enough uh, at Rutgers, but imagine doing that from a prison cell. Um, so uh, what I've seen is that uh, students who maintain a 3.1 average are allowed to matriculate and finish their degree at Rutgers. And a lot of my students have been involved, and well, they're almost all black, have been involved in organizing the service workers at Rutgers, uh, a lot of whom are white and a lot of whom are Trump supporters. Uh, and that is really, and I think that, you know, you, the point you raised is a good one. That is really where we have to go. And Lord Salisbury, who was a piece of work, uh, used to say there are no uh, permanent allies. There are only perm there's only permanent power. Um, so on specific issues, yes, we do have to build an alliance with people who don't think like us. When I sued Obama uh, in 2012 over Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibits the military from being used as a domestic police force, uh, we were joined in amicus briefs by a lot of libertarian groups, uh, I mean, very right-wing libertarian groups, and we accepted those amicus briefs so that it was a united front, along with Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg and others. Uh, so yes, we do have to build alliances. I, I, much of my family, my mother's side of the family, comes from rural Maine. Uh, they were... Uh, you know, working class, lower working class even. My uncle, who was kind of a wreck after World War II, he fought in the South Pacific, lived in a trailer. Uh, they espoused all sorts of opinions and prejudices that were repugnant to me, uh, but it was a good reality check because uh, they too uh, suffered. I mean, Maine has is, is been destroyed. The mills are gone. Uh, the town where my grandparents were from, the, even the bank is boarded up. Uh, and they express it in a very negative and unpalatable way, but we can't write these people off. That's a terrible, terrible mistake. And I think that when we do show actual empathy and compassion for the suffering that they have undergone and attempt to address uh, those issues uh, that will make their life better in a real way, not a rhetorical way, but in terms of organizing and everything else, uh, that, that is the best way to mitigate uh, this kind of, um, uh, you know, political uh, neo-fascism. I mean, there's, there's going to be a certain segment we're never going to reach, of course. Uh, sure. But writing these people off as deplorables and the kind of uh, gleeful, I, you know, almost demonization of these uh, people who stormed the Capitol uh, on January 6th uh, is only furthering the divide uh, which uh, weakens us and uh, helps solidify the monolithic corporate power that has our political structure in a kind of death grip. Not to mention, uh, hey, go ahead, Kyle. I was just going to say, I'll let you talk in just one second. I just want to buttress this point real quick. Yes, I, I think you're correct that when you address the economic concerns, the xenophobia and the bigotry drops because when everybody's, when everybody's doing relatively well, you don't need a scapegoat. Right now, right. people feel like they need a scapegoat, and so they're pointing in all the wrong directions. They should be pointing at Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and, and all the forces that are billionaires, all the forces that are actually keeping them down, but unfortunately, they missed the mark. And just a quick correction, 
we uh, this is the home of the populist left. So we're trying to bring back <laughs> the populist right left here. here. But, uh, Crystal, <laughs> Crystal, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No worries. Um, I mean, you you made me think about a lot of things. One of the things that really soured me on the Democratic Party, Chris, was um, the time that I spent living in Kentucky while Trump was getting elected. And, um, you know, I lived in Louisville, which is a blue city, but you're surrounded by a lot of people who think a lot differently than I do. And when I would tweet or put out messages about things that were happening in the state of Kentucky, because not only was Trump getting elected, but they had a terrible Republican governor who was, you know, passing right to work and attacking teachers' pensions and all of this stuff. The messages I would get back were almost uniformly like, well, screw those people. They voted. It's their fault. They voted for Matt Bevin. They voted for Trump. So, you know, basically they deserve whatever they get. And I've always thought I agree with your political analysis that, you know, you are much more likely to be able to have that multiracial working class coalition and be able to push to further to the fringes the racism and the xenophobia if you take care of people's material well-being and give them that sense of stability and optimism for themselves and their kids' lives. But even if it doesn't work as a political strategy, it's just the right thing to do. Like, I didn't sign up to be a part of a party that was going to pick and choose who was worthy of basic dignity as a human being. Where do you think, I mean, this is obviously a, a long strain now within the Democratic Party, going back to Clinton and probably before that. But I would love your analysis of where that instinct, rather than trying to appeal to people to try to shame and shun people, where has that really come from? Well, it's come largely from the Democratic establishment. Uh, and when you talk about, well, you know, people saying, well, responding to your tweets and saying, well, screw them, they voted for Trump. Let's not forget that they voted for Clinton. The great betrayal of the working class in this country was orchestrated by figures like Clinton and Biden, not to mention mass incarceration. Half of my students in prison would not be there, but for Clinton and Biden, uh, who militarized the police. And this was all an effort on the part of Clinton uh, to take back the law and order issue from the Republicans by outlaw and ordering uh, the Republican Party. Biden was the one who pushed through, I think it's 51 now, federal crimes merit the death penalty when Biden, and he used to brag about this on the campaign trail, when he began uh, it was, I believe, one or two, a very small number. Uh, and uh, uh, so we, ha we, can't, we can't forget that the Democratic Party uh, not only passed policies like this, but really destroyed, let's talk about mass incarceration, uh, disrupted and destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands of families, uh, the suffering that they engendered in former manufacturing centers that have gone into a, a tailspin where the churches are boarded up. Go out, I wrote my last, the book before this one, out of Anderson, Indiana, the old city where all the GM, a lot of the GM cars were made. It's just a ghost town with the usual methamphetamine labs and suicides. And uh, it, it, so uh, we have to be clear that this, uh, that yes, of, of course, uh, Trump is, uh, kind of uh, playing the role of a cult figure and uh, uh, is mendacious and, uh, you know, all the things we know, narcissistic and everything else. Uh, but the Democrats are not any better. They're just smoother. Uh, so um, I, I think that, the, that, that we have to stop looking at 
uh, particular political figures or even a political party, but at corporate control and what it has engendered and what it has cost and focus on fighting back as workers in the Amazon plant uh, or the Kellogg workers or, or a lot of the people in the fast food industry or the that's where nurses. I mean, this is where our effort has to go because all of the power base that uh, once was able to push back against corporate hegemony uh, starting in the early 70s, everything has been rolled back. We have to rebuild uh, those structures. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of the left uh, has kind of checked out uh, and uh, uh, and decided that, whoops, sorry, and decided that... Um, uh, the left has checked out. That's what the left that? said. You yeah, said the left has checked out. Left is, a lot of the left has checked out. Uh, and essentially retreated into uh, this, um, uh, you know, almost uh, this this internecine policing yeah. of each other. It, yeah. it, it, go back and read what happened in the Cultural Revolution because uh, it has a lot of echoes of that. Um, and and, uh, and again, it is a way to uh, empower yourself or, or certainly. Uh, uh, give to yourself a kind of self-righteous smugness without actually confronting the real centers of power that are carrying out this assault. Chris, let me ask you what you do make of uh, some of the, the strikes that have been going on, um, the coal miners down in Alabama. You have union drives, places like uh, Bessemer, Alabama, seeking to form a union, Starbucks for the first time, first U.S. shop to unionize. You also, outside of the union context, you have mass resignations. You have people at fast food restaurants and Dollar Generals. The whole staff is getting together and saying, we're out of here, posting a note on the door, and they're done. So you see a sort of rebellion that's happening in places, uh, some surprising places across the country. What do you make of that? Well, that's the most hopeful sign we have. Yeah. And that's where all our energy should go. And if somebody who's trying to, one of your coworkers or you're working in a Starbucks and somebody says something that's politically incorrect, uh, you don't uh, excommunicate those people. Uh, there is a way to deal with it in, in an appropriate way. I have to deal with homophobia in prisons because it's rampant in prisons, understandably, because uh, in the male prisons, <clears throat> especially in the male prisons, uh, their identity as heterosexual men is taken away from them through incarceration. But I have to be quite fierce uh, about it. Uh, and I'm not trying to convert them. I'm just trying to say you can't use that language. But I don't reject, reject you. As in my classroom, we don't use uh, you know, uh, homophobic slurs. We just don't use them. Um, uh, and then we go on. Um, but I, I think that the left is is very eager, eager to kind of write people within their own uh, uh, political milieu off and uh, as a kind of this kind of, uh, you know, form of, of a moral purity or this kind of inquisition. And this is really uh, counter deeply counterproductive to what we have to do. So uh, I would also want to say that, you know, for a lot of my students who come out of prison, uh, who are brilliant and but, you know, come off the street, the Twitter universe isn't real. It isn't their universe. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't really care what uh, people chatter back and forth. They're they're out there really, really struggling to hold it together, because, of course, when you get out of prison, you're thrown into a criminal caste system where you 
you can't get work, you can't get public housing, you can't get any kind of support or hundreds of jobs, basically any job that requires a license, like even a hairdresser you can't get. So it's really, really tough. And that's the, that's the real world. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I think that you're right, that those are the most hopeful and the most important movements uh, that we see to counter corporate hegemony, uh, which is not only rapidly consolidating power, but eviscerating freedom of expression uh, through Silicon Valley and removing, I was, a, I was a fierce opponent of removing Trump from uh, Twitter. I mean, I, you know, we talk about the return of Trump or a Trump-like figure, there will be a difference this time. This time they will come back filled with fury and vengeance. Uh, yeah. and it will be very nasty. So, uh, Chris, you reminded me of maybe one of the most hopeful stories in American politics when I was listening to one of your interviews last night. And I had forgotten about this story, but uh, Richard Nixon was in the White House and uh, they he was being protested. And Lord only knows how many thousands of people were out there. And they they put uh, school buses back to back to block the crowd from from coming at them. And Nixon turned to his advisor and said, they're going to get past the school buses and they're going to get us. Right. There and, were city buses that ring the White House. I think this was 71. It was one of the largest anti-war. And he says to Kissinger, he says that they're going to break through the barricades and get us. It's a little anecdote I always tell. But I said, that's precisely where you want people in power to be. Mm. Uh, right. A response to fear. There's nothing altruistic about power, despite what they teach us in school about these benevolent, white, slaveholding, aristocratic men like George Washington, who was the richest man in America. Uh, largely because of, especially in Ohio, all of the Native American land that at gunpoint he and other militias stole and then sold. Uh, I mean, of course, and ran a large plantation himself. So uh, there, the, the, it's always it's always those organized dissident groups that have opened up the space uh, for democratic change. How this is the brilliance of Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States. So it's the abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement. And we cannot forget that our labor wars were the most violent uh, and the bloodiest. Hundreds and hundreds of American workers were murdered uh, by gun thugs and Pinkertons and uh, militias uh, hired by Carnegie and Rockefeller and Homestead, all this kind of stuff, uh, and thousands upon thousands blacklisted. It was a very brutal battle. Uh, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, all, all of these movements were that what fought against a, a, a closed system because we we began this country with an extremely closed system that locked out uh, women and, uh, of course, uh, uh, Native Americans and uh, uh, people of color, uh, uh, men who couldn't own property. And then they rigged the system through the Electoral College and the Senate it used to be that People were appointed to the Senate. Uh, and if you go back and read the Federalist Papers, it's because they were terrified of popular democracy. They're quite upfront about it. Uh, and uh, so it's always been a battle. And since 19, the rise of popular movements in the 60s and the early 70s, there's been a very concerted and well-organized effort by the, the most powerful forces in the corporate uh, and capitalist class. Uh, and you look at the 1971 Lewis Powell memo as a blueprint for this, to seize control of institutions, to block what the political scientist Samuel Huntington called uh, our excess of democracy. And unfortunately, they've been very successful and we have to 
begin again. And one of the things that I'm very concerned about, as I know you are, is what's happening in terms of freedom of expression in the press, uh, because the walls are, are, I'm old enough to remember what it was like, you know, 30 plus years ago when I began as a reporter in Central America, the walls are just closing in on us in a very, very frightening way. So that even getting out uh, the truth uh, about power is becoming harder and harder. Can you so, elaborate hold on-, on? Just real quick, because I'm sorry, I just wanted to get to, uh, the Nixon thing was to set up this question, which has been bothering me. Um, whether it's the Nixon story, which really shows the power of bottom-up pressure or the union stuff that we were just talking about, which again is, is bottom-up or the civil rights movement more bottom-up. But you could also think of examples of the opposite in a sense, where you have these figureheads, you have these leaders who can sort of mobilize and channel the energy in very specific ways, whether it's Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez. In 2016, Bernie Sanders sparked something and took that energy and was able to, to, to channel it and direct it and lead it in the proper direction. So do you think left-wing movements necessarily have to be bottom up or is some semblance of a figurehead and leadership needed? And, you know, I'm of the belief you actually need both of those things. I'm curious where you are on that. No, it always has to be bottom up. I mean, history has shown that is the only way to affect change. Now, remember, the people who are in power write history uh, and they write a very distorted view of history to justify their own place in power. Antonio Gramsci, of course, is the best theorist on this. Um, I would say that Bernie Sanders betrayed us. He led us down a cul-de-sac. He talked about a political revolution uh, that ended as soon as Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden got the nomination. Uh, and we're not going to build, number one, a real political revolution during an election cycle. Uh, and we're certainly not going to build a political revolution by getting people to go out and vote uh, for uh, the Democratic Party leaders uh, that uh, are responsible for uh, the deep betrayal and, and the rise of the corporate state. Uh, so I'm, I, I don't Personally, I, I think Bernie is honest and decent, and I think his uh, commitment to working men and women is real and has been true throughout his life, whether he's just naive or politically astute, because, of course, they'd destroy him. If he took on the Democratic Party establishment, he'd end up like George McGovern when he took on the animal ag industry, uh, and they uh, essentially drove him out of the Senate, uh, and he was never elected to office again. Uh, Bernie knows that, uh, and I think that's the kind of uh, price he's willing to pay. He's not stupid, uh, but uh, he 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 failed us. I mean, I was with Cornell West and I, uh, the Democratic Convention, uh, when Clinton became the nominee. Uh, were with a group, several thousand homeless, unhoused people in Philadelphia. We marched on the Wells Fargo Center, so we were actually outside the appropriately named Wells Fargo Center when a, a lot of Bernie delegates. I mean. A large number came out uh, chanting, this is what democracy looks like, and walked out while Bernie was giving his endorsement speech for Clinton. And, and Cornell, who's astute about everything, uh, turned to me and said, Bernie just missed his historical moment. He should have walked out with him. Hmm. So what should he have done, though? That, that's what I'm curious about. Well, so, what do you think would have been ideal for him to do? The, the only way is to, is to build a political third party. Now, I say that, I, you know, I was Ralph Nader's speechwriter. I am fully aware of all of the obstacles thrown in front of third party candidates uh, because I watched the Democratic Party do it to Ralph. 
Uh, and they, a lot of those tactics, of course, they used against Bernie. Uh, without corporate money, neither Biden nor Clinton would have gotten the nomination. Without the DNC working on behalf of first the Clinton and the Biden campaign, uh, uh, they wouldn't have, neither of them would have gotten the nomination. Uh, they have no real support. I think the, the thing is the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, doesn't function as a real political party. The base has no say. You have the kind of uh, political theater that they put on at convention time and everything else, but the base has completely been uh, rendered uh, impotent. has no uh, it, real input into the celeb Biden. Who wants Biden? I mean, uh, Biden was selected uh, by the all the Democratic uh, donor class, Lloyd Blankfein, who are very upfront, by the way, and said that if Bernie was the nominee, they'd all vote for Trump. Uh, they weren't even hiding it. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's, I, I think we have to be aware, very wary of uh, investing all of our hopes in a particular political figure. Uh, it's a great story about the Wobblies, the old radical uh, union organizers, anarchists, I come kind of impartial to anarchists, uh, and uh, they, they carried all these dock strikes on the West Coast, uh, quite successful, shutting down ports until they got uh, union contracts. And uh, the, the San Francisco, I think it was San Francisco, called out their cops for beating all the dock workers. And so a bunch of wobblies got on a boat from Portland or somewhere, uh, LA or somewhere, and showed up at the docks and uh, they're coming off the gangway and uh, uh, the cops are beating them and goes, where's your leader? Where's your leader? And one of the Wobblies said, we're all leaders. Uh, so uh, uh, I think, you know, there is no Messiah. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, and investing hopes in a Messiah, whoever that Messiah is throughout history, I think has uh, shown that it's, uh, 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 that Messiah can often become as egregious a figure in terms of uh, suppression or control as the one that was overthrown or replaced. We have to build powerful popular movements that are always antagonistic to power, uh, no matter who has power to hold them in check. So a couple things. Um, first of all, I'm interested in knowing more about how you continue to hold power to account and what that looks like. But also, obviously, the counter argument is, well, you're well aware of all the barriers to the success of a third party candidate. And ultimately, Bernie came a lot closer than, say, Ralph Nader did. And if you do get into the presence, you do have a lot of power at your disposal to reform the system and, you know, at least bring into power a new regime. So what do you say to that? Because to me, when I think about a third party route, I mean, hijacking the Democratic Party seems pretty hopeless, but third party route seems even more hopeless to me. So how do you get around that? Do you have to have some sort of democracy reform first or what does that path ultimately look like? No, they're both hopeless. I didn't say either third party, <laughs> ever. Bernie, they were never gonna allow Bernie to be the nominee. I mean, they didn't even hide it. Uh, so they're both hopeless. So the question is how to begin to push back against power uh, and Ralph, uh, who has been fighting corporate power longer and probably with more integrity than any other American and knows more about it. I mean, when I came back from overseas, uh, Ralph, who's brilliant, was just pushing book uh, after book on me, uh, a, a kind of private tutorial because I'd been overseas for 20 years and really didn't understand how corporate power worked. Uh, and, you know, he was my professor in that way. And his argument, which I believed, 
was that the idea, if we can pull 5, 10, 15 million people out of the Democratic Party into a third party movement, it will function to put pressure on the Democrats who will become frightened. That was always the plan. He, Ralph's didn't want to be president and, and never thought that he would be president. And I think that, that it, it is about putting pressure. Uh, in, in that sense, the Sanders delegates in 2016 were right uh, when they walked out. Uh, and we have to stop thinking of achieving political power, uh, but beginning to frighten political power. And that's a different goal. I understand that argument. The thing that I keep coming back to, though, is in a certain sense, as you're pointing out, those delegates did take that courageous stand and stand and frighten political power. Whether it's true or not, the left got blamed for voting for Jill Stein and electing Donald Trump. So you would think that would be OK. Well, you scared them. But it didn't seem to, you know, it made the Democratic Party worse in yeah, a sense. They All they did was demonize the left then and say these people are evil them. and bad. They yeah. don't want to integrate them. Then they demonize them more. So it actually has the opposite of the intended effect. Well, ask yourself, why did they demonize them more? They demonized them more because they, they blamed because them they got, for Trump. No, because they got scared. Right, but it, but it works. Well, if it's, if it's one million or fifteen million or thirty thousand. million, they could just demonize them too. Like it, no matter how big you make the number, if you're not winning, they could just turn around and blame you and and kick you well, out of any sort of coalition instead sure. of bringing you into a coalition. Well, they, bl they blamed Ralph for the election of George W. Bush, which was completely false. They stopped the counting after two counties. They raced to the Supreme Court. And Bush got appointed by judicial fiat. Even Gore says he won now. Uh, so, of course, they're going to, the more powerful you become, the more you're going to be demonized. Look at Julian Assange. They've spent a lot of money and energy and time uh, in terms of character assassination. Well, so, Chris, does, doesn't. Doesn't that, sorry to cut you off, but doesn't that disprove the point, though? Because if the idea is, look, you go outside the party system, you, uh, you, stand for something real, and then they're forced to integrate you within the system so that you actually have power and can make change. If every time there's a step outside of the system, they're like, well, you're the you're at fault, you're to blame, and so you go play over there with your 5 or 10%, we don't care. Doesn't that disprove the point about stepping no. outside of the system like that? I, I didn't ever say you were going to be integrated into the system. You're not. Uh, no, I, I think the, the, the fact that they will invest so much energy into demonizing you is because they're frightened. Uh, and that's the point. Uh, if, you know, 15, 20 million people consistently voted for a third party candidate, that would scare the hell out of the Democrats. Uh, and the whole idea of, you know, of course they're gonna blame, they, bl they blame Nader for Bush, they blame, about blaming Jill Stein for the election. Trump is insane. I mean, she didn't get any votes. Uh, the Green Party doesn't get any votes. I vote green, by the way. I don't. I don't vote for Democrats. Uh, uh, but no, it's it's. Uh, you, they're never going to integrate you into that structure. The que the question, the fundamental question is: Is the Democratic Party reformable? Uh, and a lot of people, you know, around Bernie Sanders thought that it was. I don't believe that it is. But is, isn't that kind of nihilistic, though? Because I, you know, I feel like if Trump, who's this absolute charlatan, con man, fraud. He came up in the Republican primary, granted all the bigotry and xenophobia and all the terrible stuff he said about Mexicans, Muslims, so on and so forth. He also said, I'm not going to do TPP. He also said, I'm not going to cut your Social Security, unlike these other idiots on stage. So here you have somebody who at the time people thought might be a real populist, turned out he was a fake populist. And that guy was able to manhandle the Republican infrastructure and, and, and 
rise up and win. So I actually think it's defeatist and nihilistic to think that Bernie 2016 couldn't have won if he had some balls on him and if he was willing to fight in a way that apparently he wasn't willing to fight. Well, Bernie, you have to look at Bernie's long trajectory. By, in 1996, Bernie was campaign, campaigning for Clinton uh, after NAFTA, after the omnibus crime bill. Uh, Bernie knew what Clinton was doing, what Clinton was about, but he wanted to salvage his political position. Bernie has always uh, been a de facto member of the Democratic Party uh, and therefore was not telling the complete truth. He told partially the truth, but he wasn't going to take on the Democrats uh, and the Democratic Party establishment. And that makes him, I think, morally and politically unfit uh, to, to lead this resistance movement because the Democrats are as culpable as the Republicans for the distortion that has created the American oligarchy and left, at this point, almost three quarters, certainly well over 60% of the country, living in a state of poverty or what they classify as near poverty. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, I, I, I just, I don't see how Bernie was the solution. Uh, what we've got is 1932 Weimar Germany where the uh, elites have gathered together and uh, tossed up a figure like von Papen uh, because they're frightened of the fascists, uh, with, and we're all, we all should be frightened of the fascists, uh, to recreate the Ancien Regime. Well, nobody from the left or the right wants the Ancien Regime, and that's the problem. The Democratic Party is utterly tone deaf to what's happening in the country and to how dangerous uh, it has become because the, with the, it could happen as soon as the midterms, but uh, certainly by 2024, uh, there could no longer be any pretense of democracy. I would argue we don't live in a democracy now anyway, but uh, there could not even be the pretense of a yeah. democracy. At that point, it becomes an autocracy. Here's another question I have for you, Chris. Do you think that Democrats care first and foremost about winning? Because it also seems to me that you know, some of the assumptions that are baked in to how we think about politics is this assumption that they really, really care about winning, that that's the primary and only goal. Um, but it doesn't seem to me like they act like that's the case. I mean, certainly the Biden administration has not acted like it, that was the case. If they did, then they would have, you know, taken redistricting reform and things like that more seriously. So they had more of a shot to hold on to power in the midterms. It seemed they were perfectly willing, as you're pointing out, to lose in service of tanking Bernie in the chance that he might do something that was uncomfortable to, the, to them. It seems to me like their number one priority is to maintain their cartel and their cartel does very well, whether they're in the White House or not. They still get their consulting contracts. They still get their cable news gigs. They still get their think tank money and all of that stuff. So what do you think about that piece of it? No, it's not about power. It's about privilege. So they're willing to uh, go down uh, as long as their privilege is untouched. I mean, in a functioning democratic party, uh, i.e. the base determines who leads it, uh, Schumer, Pelosi, all these figures would be gone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, nobody wants them. Uh, uh, but they're, they're, you know, if they, they're going to keep their first class uh, cabin. Uh, and if they have to take down the whole ship with them, then that's what's going to happen. Hmm. Uh, you know, and where does the power that Schumer and Pelosi have come from? It comes from the fact that they are the funnels for big money and, yep. in the campaigns. And if you anger Pelosi, you see it with the way they've domesticated AOC. 
uh, and it, it's not an idle threat. You, you'll, you'll be destroyed. Uh, look at Dennis Kucinich, who did defy the Democratic Party establishment. Uh, and finally, uh, Pelosi wouldn't even let Kucinich, by the way, uh, caucus. He, wouldn't, he couldn't even sit in on the meetings, even though he's, though he's a Democrat. Uh, and then finally, the Democratic Party uh, redistrict uh, gerrymandered his district so that he was thrown out of the House. Uh, and he just ran for uh, last fall for mayor of Cleveland. He was way ahead in the polls. And then suddenly, uh, uh, massive amounts of dark money came in to destroy his candidacy. Uh, that's how the Democratic Party operates. So uh, you're right, uh, Crystal. That's a, a good point. They don't really care about winning. They care about privilege. And they won't give up that privilege no matter what, uh, even if it means self-immolation. So uh, let me ask you. Uh, Slavo Zizek recently said on the Bad Faith podcast with Brianna Joy Gray, he basically made an accelerationist argument where he was like, I think I, I kind of believe that it has to get catastrophically bad before it gets better. Um, what's your take on accelerationism? It's a misreading of history. Uh, things, you know, I don't believe in the myth of human progress. Mm. And you read August Blanqui, the great French revolutionary, he's the best on this. Uh, things can get worse and they can get worse for a really long time. Uh, the idea that uh, we are inevitably traveling towards a better tomorrow is just not borne out historically. Uh, and so I do share the alarm uh, of the rise of this neo-fascist Christian movement. Remember, the ideology is essentially this Christian fascism. Trump had no ideology at all. And that void was filled with this Christian fascism. It frightens me. It's why I wrote the book that I did. Um, uh, but the question is, how are you going to fight it? Uh, and at this point, I think the track record, uh, shows that fighting it through the democratic party is hopeless. Obviously their argument is the lesser evil argument. You know, listen, the threat of Trump and fascism is so grave that even though you don't like us and we've done all these bad things in the past, we got to just get this guy out of here to avoid the worst possible scenario. What is your response to that? It doesn't work. I mean, it, it, because things get progressively worse. They tend to get progressively worse faster under Republicans, but not in all cases. Obama uh, carried out, uh, Obama's assault on civil liberties, I think outdid George W. Bush, especially his assault on the press. Uh, 10 times he sued government uh, contractor, or he went after government contractors or uh, intelligence officials, uh, Kiriakou and others, under the Espionage Act. He seized the phone records of AP uh, reporters. He massively expanded the drone war uh, with the revelations of Snowden. He did nothing uh, to counter the wholesale surveillance of the American uh, public. Uh, the rhetoric is nicer, uh, but the policies don't change much. Uh, so the the I, I think that the lesser evil argument uh, again skirts the question of who has power. You can't vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs or ExxonMobil. It doesn't matter who you vote for. Uh, and uh, we have to look closely at where the actual centers of power are and what they're doing and fight back against them. It's one of the reasons I'm so uh, uh, vocal about what's happening to Julian. Uh, and or Steve Donziger, and I know you've done great uh, stuff on this for both of them. These are very important cases because it's the collapse of your judiciary. Uh, so uh, the lesser evil argument uh, only works 
uh, if uh, you believe the Democratic Party is not as beholden to corporate power as the Republican Party, and I, I don't think that's true. Let me ask you this, a, a little bit of a weird question here, but so of the things that Biden have done, I could sit here for an hour and list all the terrible things, and I do that on a regular basis on my show. Um, the stuff that I think is good, he did right to repair, which helped, you know, uh, farmers and people who were totally at the whim of, of John Deere. He allows them to repair their own stuff. They don't have to take it to John Deere anymore. He did uh, uh, federal $15 minimum wage for federal employees and federal contractors that impacted 400,000 people. He did uh, pull the troops out of Afghanistan. Now, I will say what's happening in Afghanistan now is actually worse. Because of U.S. sanctions, you have a million children in Afghanistan who might die from starvation. So it's, it's, it's damning with faint praise here to say, like, oh, good for you to pull the troops out of Afghanistan. But can you name a, a single thing that he did that, that you think he deserves credit for? Well, let's go back to Afghanistan. They didn't expect to lose power in Afghanistan. Uh, they withdrew the troops and thought that this, on the paper, massive Afghan army was going to hold the Taliban at bay. Uh, with the probably billions of dollars of equipment and training that we had given to them. And again, it was an intelligence failure. So uh, the system itself, you know, after 20 years, it was uh, not a war that uh, had zero popular support. Nobody wanted to be there. It was clearly failing. The Taliban, we should remember, militarily uh, has been ascendant. Uh, uh, I think at the time of our withdrawal, they controlled about 70% of the country. So let's be clear, we were defeated. Uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Has he done some good things? Yes. I mean, he doesn't make war on the EPA, although, of course, he's opened up new drilling sites. I mean, uh, that the, we can list, uh, you know, the, we can list good things Trump did. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever you say about Trump, uh, he didn't start any wars. Uh, he perpetuated a few, but he didn't start any new ones. Uh, and uh, throwing the Trump war, too. What's yeah. that? I said increase he increased the, the drone, drone war, war too. Yeah. Sure, but he didn't invade any new countries like Libya, which Hillary True, Clinton but... did because she wanted to burnish her credentials. As True, but he, he also assassinated an Irani, a top Iranian commander who was on the ground fighting ISIS. So I would count that as an act of war. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't go to war with Iran over it, uh, but uh, no, I, I there's all sorts of litany of horrible things he's done. Uh, but, uh, and, but, you know, there, there are some positive uh, elements, even within the Trump administration, throwing all of the money, even though Moderna is now keeping it, not sharing the patent and everything else, uh, was a good response to uh, rapidly rolling out uh, vaccines. Uh, I mean, the list is a lot shorter, uh, but nevertheless, the fundamental problem of the corporate uh, cabal that has seized political power and created the most rapacious oligarchy in American history remains uh, unchecked. Uh, and that was true for Trump and it was true for Biden. Uh, uh, right. You know, a case that um, Michael Brooks made that I found very compelling and that I think in some respects has been borne out as he said, you know, the, the best reason to vote for Biden is because he'll put decent people at the National Labor Relations Board. And we have seen that be significant in some of these battles. So, for example, in Bessemer, they're going to get another shot at a union election because the NLRB ruled that Amazon cheated. 
Does that happen under a Trump NLRB? I think it's very unlikely since he staffed it up with a bunch of, you know, union busting lawyers. Um, you also had uh, with the Starbucks union fight, there are a number of local NLRB decisions that also went in their direction that helped to combat some of the union busting tactics that Starbucks was using there as well. They wanted all the stores in Buffalo to have to vote at the same time. They tried to push off the election as much as possible, which is devastating in the service sector. So what do you make of that argument? Because that enables the fights that I think all of us agree are the most hopeful and the most central right now to a real political movement, which is waging war and winning battles in the labor movement. It's just not enough for me to support the Democrats. I, I agree with you that they're positive steps. Uh, remember, they used to used to be the Supreme Court. We can't let mm -hmm. uh, Republicans. Well, people uh, kind of forget that Biden was the champion of Scalia and Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the question is, do we overthrow corporate power and how do we do it? Uh, and you can have the friendly form of fascism or f a corporate fascism uh, in the face of the Democratic Party or the cruder, vulgar form of corporate fascism in the face of Trump and Pence and Betsy DeVos and all of these figures. Uh, I mean, I do agree with you that the Trump administration does more damage uh, and is far scarier. The question is, how do we block them from achieving power? And the strategy that is embraced by the Democratic Party ensures that they will return to power. Uh, and that's uh, the very sober truth that we have to first accept and then figure out how to respond to. So let me ask you this, because this is another thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Uh, there's actually a pretty strong and, and vibrant debate going on on the left right now in terms of uh, the vaccines. You have some lefties who say, look, I'm in favor of the vaccine, but zero mandates. Some lefties even say, I'm not in favor of the vaccine and zero mandates. Then you have another position, which I would classify as the hard mandate position, which you know some countries around the world have implemented this. And in some industries, like high-risk industries, like nursing homes and hospitals, there's like a hard vaccine mandate, which is like, look, get the vaccine, full stop. That's the end of the conversation. Like You have to get it through force of law. Um, and then there's uh, what, I, what I, my personal position, which was actually echoed by Jeremy Corbyn recently, uh, is this notion of you can either get the vaccine or if you're not going to get the vaccine, fine, you have the freedom to make that decision, but then you have to test. So where do you fall on that? Which position do you think is the most reasonable? I don't think we're going to stop the pandemic and the mutations until everyone gets vaccinated. I mean, I think most uh, epidemiologists and uh, world health officials, uh, this is part of the whole battle with Moderna, that uh, by not uh, sharing the patent with countries right. like South Africa, uh, which have said, just give us the formula, we'll make it ourselves, but they won't do it because it's all about money. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that then we're just going to get mutated. If everybody is not able to get vaccinated and doesn't have access to vaccine, uh, then we will just get mutation after mutation after mutation. And this thing isn't going to go away. Uh, so uh, I actually share some of the concerns with anti-vaxxers. I don't trust Moderna or Pfizer or any of these Same. companies myself. Same. I got vaccinated and my kids are vaccinated. Uh, because uh, the consequences of allowing this pandemic to just roll forward, uh, and, and let's not just talk about the health consequences, which of course are catastrophic, 
but the political, the social, the economic uh, consequences are very dire. Uh, if you look at massive disruptions, look, go back and look at the, uh, the Black Death or something, uh, these often trigger uh, uh, the rise of millennial or very radical, uh, often uh, violent uh, political movements. At, at, because what, the, what you're really doing uh, through a uh, prolonged pandemic is uh, breaking down the, uh, the structures, in our case, very feeble structures within the society. I mean, our healthcare system is a disaster. It's why we're less than 5% of the world's population. And we have, I think, a quarter of the world's deaths from COVID. Uh, and that's something Biden is not addressing at all because he can't. Biden is very limited in what he can do uh, because he and the Democratic Party serve the interests of corporate power. Uh, and because they know that any election is going to be, again, very close because they all fight over the, those tiny margins of the electorate uh, and they need massive amounts of money to do that. Uh, and, and so they are not going to antagonize uh, their donors, which cripples them politically. Um, you obviously were foreign correspondent at the New York Times, um, lost your job because you were unwilling to stop speaking the truth about the war in Iraq. Um, what are the changes that you have tracked at the New York Times and other uh, corporate media outlets from the time that you began as a journalist up until today? It's a very different media landscape. Uh, and the two books that capture the old media landscape and the new media landscape are Manufacturing Consent by Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky, uh, uh, with the caveat that neither Noam or Ed actually understood how their assumptions were right, but they didn't understand how newsrooms worked. I've actually talked to Noam at length about this. Uh, and then uh, Matt Taibbi's book, Hate, Inc., with Rachel Maddow on one side of the cover and Sean Hannity on the other. So the change in the media landscape used to be that you had a, a few uh, powerful media organizations like the New York Times, like the three networks. Uh, CNN was just coming in in the 80s when I was in Central America, uh, but they dominated the dissemination of news and information. Yes, you had alternative media, The Village Voice, uh, old Ramparts magazine edited by uh, Bob Shear, who now runs Shear Post, who I write for, after we all got fired by a progressive site for trying to unionize, uh, Truth Dig, there you go. Um, uh, but now media has siloed itself to cater, and this is an economic choice, to a particular demographic. New York Times is true. And you look at the, the Pew poll. So I think it's 87% um, or something of the readers of the Times self-identify as supporters of the Democratic Party, 94% for MSNBC, about parallel kind of figure for Fox in terms of the Republican Party. And they, they not only cater to that demographic and tell that demographic what it wants to hear, but of course they're demonizing the other demographic, which is widening the divide. And that's something that I witnessed in Yugoslavia when I covered the war there. Uh, you had uh, the Croats, the Serbs, and the Muslims uh, create their own media empires uh, to uh, often disseminate myth. Uh, the New York Times spent two years uh, on Russiagate, the Washington Post, which won a Pulitzer for Russiagate stuff, actually they just took it down off the site because of, and they admitted, finally uh, had to admit that it was completely false. Uh, you had uh, the uh, Caliphate. This was a podcast, I think 10 or 11 parts, 
Uh, now, I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I speak Arabic. I heard that podcast and knew after about 15 minutes it was a fake. Hmm. Uh, it, wow. it, it be, well, because it was just snuff, audio snuff porn, you know, nailing people to crosses, mm. thrusting their knife in their heart. It was just salacious garbage. Um, but it catered to the demonization of Muslims, in particular Muslims in the Middle East. Um, there was no price to pay for that. There was no price the Times paid for uh, hyping uh, the fake Russiagate stuff uh, because they, it's what their demogra demographic wanted to hear and believed. And that's very dangerous. So there's been a, very, a deep corrosion. I mean, let's not romanticize the commercial press, as my friend Sidney Schamberg uh, one said, uh, we may not have, we may not be making things better, but at least we're stopping things from getting worse. Uh, and it's always been the alternative press, by the way, that has pushed the mainstream press into doing their job. And that's why I'm such a strong supporter of Julian Assange, because the mainstream press, The Guardian, El País, New York Times, they all had to publish the stuff that the documents that Chelsea Manning courageously gave to Julian on war crimes and corruption and lies and everything else. Uh, because if they didn't, they would be exposed. But uh, I know from coming from within these organizations, there's there was a, always a deep animus towards Assange hmm. and a hatred of Assange uh, for essentially shaming them, which is why as soon as the, the, they, they published the material, they went after him as part of this wide campaign to uh, discredit and destroy him. Uh, so uh, we still have on the Internet, but let's be clear, Silicon Valley is using algorithms to marginalize uh, any content, uh, including mm. my own, that criticizes uh, imperial power in the corporate state. That's not conjecture, by the way. Uh, we ran a graph. The last year I worked, the IT people did a graph of what they call impressions, uh, where you know somebody would type in the word imperialism into Google, and if I had written a story on it, it would come up, along with anything else. All of that's been a race. So they actually... Uh, graphed over a 12-month period referrals from impressions, which dropped from over 700,000 to well below 200,000 or probably far below that now as they perfect those algorithms. So uh, the, the calls on the part of mainstream media uh, to essentially impose censorship, both Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, I think, have covered this very well. I admire them for uh, watching all this garbage and reading all that crap. I don't actually own a television, mm -hmm. uh, but it's mm -hmm. important. It's important. And so uh, the, uh, the, they, they are complicit in sort of shutting down alternative points of view. Again, that's from an economic model because they want to drive readers to, uh, you know, what Susan Nossel, this corporate lawyer who runs PEN America, uh, calls anchored media, mainstream uh, corporate media and shut everyone else out. And that's where you get Twitter uh, blocking the New York Post from its own account after the Hunter Biden stuff. Uh, uh, that's where you get the removal of Trump and Alex Jones and everyone else. That's not really a solution. I mean, these we don't know who these people are, by the way. We don't know nothing about these entities that are carrying out this kinds of censorship. And on the other hand, they know everything about us. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a very dangerous position to be in. You know, Crystal and I actually have firsthand experience with this. So when Crystal was doing the show Rising at the Hill, um, they were the beneficiary of whatever the YouTube, uh, the, the top tier of the YouTube algorithm is. So, you know, Crystal, they kind of flew under the radar and the owner of the Hills an idiot. So we didn't really know how, you <laughs> know, subversive what was happening. <laughs> Crystal's show was. 
And, um, you know, they she'd get a million views, 1.2, 1.5 million views on one of her monologues. And then they went independent and it's the exact same show. And um, they just don't have the same benefits of the top tier of the algorithm. And me personally, you know, I used to grow 40,000, 50,000 subscribers per month on YouTube. And then the YouTube CEO did an event and she was asked a question about misinformation and disinformation and what they're doing about it. And she said, in no uncertain terms, well, now what we're doing in the algorithm is prioritizing, and I quote, authoritative content. So what counts as authoritative content? You guessed it, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, all the traditional media outlets which pushed every war in the modern era, which pushed Russiagate at the top of their lungs. So they, they get things wrong all the time. They do conspiracy theories all the time. But my show, which I would argue has a much better track record, since I'm not authoritative, I was dropped down in the algorithm. So I went from gaining 30, 40, 50,000 subscribers a month to now I gain about 500 subscribers a month. And that's right. not well, because... That's right. Yeah. And it's frightening. And, and, and uh, um, I was talking to Bob Shear the other day. Uh, so I love Bob. He's a really uh, great editor, except he makes me rewrite my columns three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> the, the really bad thing is that he's right. Um, <laughs> but I was talking to him about, you know, exactly this issue. And he said, you know, but you and me, we're legacy journalists. I spent my career at the LA Times. You spent your career at the New York Times. I mean, we're not, uh, you know, weird, uh, you know, uh, radical alternative. We come out of that legacy establishment. But of course, we refuse to uh, cater uh, to uh, what was happening within those establishments. So we're pushed out. But, but our training and our background is... Uh, you know, completely mainstream. And, and both of us did very well within these establishments. Both of us, by the way, were pushed out over the Iraq war. But at that point, Bob, who'd been the national correspondent for the LA Times, had a column and he was denouncing the war. And he went the way of Phil Donahue and me and mm. everyone else. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, what do you think should be done? Like, what is your position on what should be done about uh, Silicon Valley control and tech company censorship? Because I think you're right that one of, you know, the, the bans, those are very visible and very still very important problems. But a lot of the action happens below the surface where none of us have any transparency yeah. with the algorithms and what people are being served and what's being put in front of them. Yeah, and let's be clear that the, the Silicon Valley has been quite upfront about that. They hire former intelligence officials, and uh, that's the people who are overseeing these algorithms. So they've kind of fused with the national security apparatus hmm. uh, who are, you know, deeply hostile to us. It's why MSNBC or CNN, who are their commentators? They're all, uh, you know, Brennan, all these figures come out of the intelligence community or the military industrial complex, who, by the way, are also like Petraeus sitting on boards making unknown, you know, massive amounts of money from the arms industry. Uh, and so any critique of the war industry in particular is going to see you, uh, if not shut down, certainly marginalized. Uh, what, what do we do? They're monopolies that have to be broken up. I mean, massive antitrust laws, you, you, by the, the purpose of breaking up a monopoly is to uh, destroy its monolithic control. Uh, and, and, and that is the only solution, but that will never happen under Biden because, uh, the democratic party has fused with Silicon Valley in the final weeks of the campaign, almost all the negative Trump ads that flooded the airwaves were created out of Silicon Valley. Again, it's dark money. We don't know how much, but certainly I would guess hundreds of 
millions of dollars were spent by Silicon Valley. I mean, look at Pelosi's. Pelosi can't uh, uh, stumble forward fast enough to please Google. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so my final question for you, uh, and then I'll turn it over to Crystal. You said, quote, legalizing the prostitution industry does not protect or empower girls and women. It expands and normalizes their exploitation. Can you uh, elaborate on that for me? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can look at Germany as a good case study because uh, they attempted, they did. I mean, it is legal uh, to run brothels in Germany. Uh, first of all, the women are, they're not Germans. The vast majority, they're trafficked. Uh, either from uh, Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe. Uh, so they have no legal rights in Germany. Uh, we know in terms of the violence and abuse, uh, it continues. Uh, we know in terms of registration, the women don't register as prostituted women uh, because they don't want the stigma. So that has failed. Uh, you know, I really go back to the old radicals of the turn of the century, Emma Goldman, all these figures who were fierce in terms of their opposition prostitution because they understood that women and girls that go into prostitution do so because they're forced to. They, they, it's economic necessity and that uh, we have to rebuild a society so that uh, women and girls are not in a position where the only commodity they have left uh, to sell in order to eat is their body. Uh, and, and then you have to look at what it does. Uh, I mean, Rachel Moran, wrote a very good book about this, uh, you know, what it does to you psychologically, what it does to you physically. Uh, it, it's not a job like any other job. And my argument to people who say that it is, I said, well, okay, go down and stand outside the Holland Tunnel uh, for a night uh, and come back and tell me it's a job. Uh, it, it's it's uh, a form of perpetual rape. Uh, and uh, we have to build a society where uh, women and girls are not put in that position. Um, that's, you know, my kind of quick opposition to prostitution and, and porn, of course. So even if we had some sort of like, uh, let's, for argument's sake, let's put aside the idea that a utopia is possible, but let's say that uh, we somehow uh, struggle to the point where we have as close to a utopia as humanly possible. Is it your contention that under that system, there still wouldn't be prostitution or porn or like there'd be no economic incentive to go in that direction you think i'm a calvinist i don't believe in utopias i believe well, in... that's why i said close to utopia not full utopia but do you think there would be no economic incentive for that in that scenario no i i don't think that human nature changes uh you know that's why going back and reading aristotle and uh the greeks and you know are, is important because they they get it i mean this is the accumulated wisdom of the past so Look, I was a war correspondent. I, I've seen uh, what human beings are capable of. Uh, I've seen the worst of human evil. And let's be clear, by the way, one of the, my reasons for speaking out against prostitution is because uh, the only thing wars produce in greater numbers than corpses are, are prostituted girls and women uh, who lose the family structure, lose the men, lose the fathers, lose the brothers, lose the sons, and are often forced from rural areas where the fighting has taken place into the city uh, and the only way they have to survive is to be prostituted, uh, usually by pimps. Actually, when I covered the war in Sarajevo, the, one of the biggest prostitution rings was run by the Ukrainian peacekeepers, the UN peacekeepers. Uh, so 
uh, I, I don't believe in utopia. I'm, I, I, I believe in empowering people as much as possible so they have choices uh, and they're not forced uh, into a position where, in this case, that is their only choice. What they do after that, I'm also, do, uh, of course, a strong supporter of not criminalizing the girls and women. They are the victims. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think, you know, rounding up uh, people because they've engaged in prostitution, they, they are the people who they don't need a record. They don't need to go to jail. Um, they need assistance. And the people who prey on them, in particular, the pimps and the traffickers, are the people who are committing the crimes. Yeah. Um, that's a good transition to I want to talk to you about your book before we let you go, because I know we've taken a lot of your time already. But um, the book is Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. Just tell people a little bit of what the book is about. I've been reading it, and it's really powerful. The way that you portray these men who have been, you know, abused and institutionalized, um, expressing and holding on to their humanity. So just talk to us a little bit about the book. So every segment of society has an intellectual class. This is what Gramsci calls organic intellectuals. It means they didn't go to Harvard or Yale or one of these fancy schools, um, which I went to and which have far fewer intellectuals than you might imagine. Um, <laughs> These people have turned their cells into libraries, highly literate, brilliant, uh, passionate about learning and reading, uh, and uh, but of course never had a chance because they came out of dysfunctional school systems that in poor communities that were designed to give them enough numerical literacy that they could work in a warehouse or at a fast food store and nothing beyond that. Uh, and uh, so, I w was teaching drama uh, in this class, 28 students, and August Wilson, who I admire immensely, Amira Baraka's Dutchman, Baldwin, these figures. And uh, what I didn't know is that one of the students had uh, knew who I was, had lit, heard me on WBAI, and recruited the writers in the prison, the best writers in the prison, and they were really phenomenal. So. Uh, just on a whim, because they didn't have experience with drama, I asked them to write dramatic dialogue about their own lives. I took these papers home uh, that first night. I read through them, and there were probably about a half dozen in there that were really stunning. This happened after a couple weeks. My wife is an actor, a professional actor, went to Juilliard. And uh, I showed them to her, and I said, you know, I'm going to help them write a play. So that process of writing the play, which was uh, not premeditated, it was completely accidental, uh, created this uh, amazing experience in the classroom uh, because in a prison, you don't even use your real legal name. Everybody has another name. You never tell anything about your past. You build these emotional walls because anybody who's vulnerable is often prey within that environment. Uh, and so suddenly people were writing these very emotionally powerful scenes about their lives and their experiences and their suffering and their loss and their grief and their anger and their, the injustices that they endured and that walls kind of melted away. I mean, I had their big guys, they call them the 400 club, which means they all bench over 400 pounds, you know, getting up and their hands were shaking. And uh, I, I always wanted to write about prisons because I've been working in prisons for a long time, but didn't know how. Uh, and even then after that class, which took uh, place in 2013, uh, I didn't write until now. Um, and I think that's because uh, it, the story had to follow. We built bonds within that class that have continued uh, to this day uh, because it was such a powerful experience. The play that they wrote 
I promised them that I would get it produced, which I eventually did uh, at the theater, professional theater in Trenton, the Passage Theater. Uh, I got it published by Haymarket. Um, and then, of course, my students began to get out. So that became part of the story. But it was really became uh, the, the, the process of writing that play became the narrative by which I could explore uh, the trauma of, uh, of mass incarceration, police violence, all, and because something in that play happened to someone in that classroom. Mm. Uh, and, but then also I needed to follow some of these guys who got out. Uh, one of the students I love that I write about after two years is still homeless in Newark. Uh, if you don't have a, a, your own support structure, you're finished. Uh, he got a job at Whole Foods. I went to see him at Whole Foods in Newark. It was really sweet. He's also like one of these guys who should have never gone to prison. I won't get into the whole issue, but uh, he was in a car. He was a kid. He was 18. Guys in their 20s went in to hold up a store. The owner reached for a gun. They shot the owner. They run back to the guard. Yeah, he was listening to a 50 Cent song. He didn't even know what was going on. Uh -huh. Off he goes to prison. And, and when they go in that young, they often come out that Youngs, but I visited him in the whole food store. It was during COVID. They hadn't done the background check because the courts were closed. And he was so proud of his work and he was so conscientious. And then as soon as the background check, they came in, they fired. Uh, um, uh, and I went to the manager and I, I, you know, I might as well have been speaking to a deaf person. It didn't make any difference. I don't care. So I wanted to, the, and the book does that. I mean, my heart is kind of on every page. Um, it, 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 it is, a lot less cerebral, my brother tells me, than my other books. Therefore, he thinks it's my best. Um, but it really is about this narrative and this story built around this process of writing this play to look at their lives and to look at mass incarceration. And it's a book I care, you know, deeply about. Yeah. I mean, listen, you're, you're a beautiful writer, but I do think this book is extraordinary because of the emotional journey that it does take you on. How do these men... How do they think about this country and about the system that has, you know, traumatized them and, and turned them into criminals and made their lives so incredibly difficult? Like, how do, how do they make sense of all of this? Well, that's a very good question, uh, because they understand there's no argument in that classroom about neoliberalism, the nature of white supremacy, uh, why there is police violence, why we have the largest prison system in the world. They understand that after these deindustrialized urban areas were left to rot, uh, the social bonds that knit them to their communities were gone, and the primary forms of social control uh, became militarized police and mass incarceration. Uh, the, the level of discussion uh, in that classroom begins uh, at a far higher point uh, than, uh, and I've taught at Princeton and Columbia and a few other places, than in a, a classroom at an elite university because so many of those students come from the elite and are uh, going to those schools to be branded to go to be part of the elite. Uh, so there was a few years ago, the Bard, Bard runs a great college degree program in the New York prison system. The Bard uh, prison debate team debated Harvard and schlacked them. It was national news. Well, it wasn't surprising to those of us who teach in the prison. I'm not pretending that everyone in the prison, this is a very select group. Prisons replicate the outside society. You have a certain segment of that society you want to stay as far away from as you can. You have a lot of people who sit slack-jawed in front of ESPN 
But then you have this elite group of, uh, I would call them intellectuals and scholars. Uh, they're autodidacts. Um, um, and those are the ones that I have the privilege of teaching. I taught Sheldon Wolin's Politics and Vision one year, uh, a, and that's a graduate level book. It's, it, Sheldon Wolin is our most important contemporary. He's dead now. He died a few years ago. Political philosopher. He was Cornell West's mentor, Wendy Brown's mentor at Berkeley. And, um, and uh, he looks at uh, Western society through the eyes of all of the great philosophers going Aristotle, Plato, Calvin, Luther, Nietzsche, Hobbes, Locke, and Marx, of course. And I remember giving my two-hour lecture on Marx. And then at the end, uh, there was this sigh from the back of the room. And one of the students said, oh, we waited all semester for Marx, and it's over. <laughs> I actually said his name's Hanif. He's a great guy. That's He's amazing. also the one who asked me. I was, talking, I was uh, teaching about Augustine, and he wanted to compare it to uh, uh, um, uh, Thomas Aquinas. I can't remember who. And of course, I've read all that stuff, but I hadn't read it recently, so I had to bullshit him for the uh, <laughs> race home and read it, so that next week I could come back <laughs> have a real answer at his level. Um, uh, and I said, "Okay, Ani. Well, when the we finish the book, I'll do you another two hours on Mars." <laughs> but those are, you know, and and just the tragedy of the talent and the integrity. Uh, it, it just, and you know, it's not just what they've done to them, but what they've done to their families and what they've done That's to right. us. I mean, That's right. uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's an attempt to, uh, of course, condemn, uh, the system itself. Uh, 94% of the people in our prison system never go to jury trial. They're coerced into taking pleas. And the way they do that is the police and prosecutors charge them with all sorts of crimes they know they didn't commit, but they use them as bargaining chips. So the students that I teach with the longest sentences usually didn't commit the crimes. They just naively went to court thinking that their innocence would be validated. Uh, and I mean, the, that's the other issue. And this was Biden, by the way, tripling and quadrupling the length of sentences. I've taught people who have life sentences and never committed a violent crime. Oh, and I've the whole issue of kids one of my students arrested at 14, literate. Both his parents were dead. He was living in an abandoned house without electricity or running water in Camden. There's a rape and a murder. The police grab him, haul him into police station. He weighs 90 pounds. He's 14, can't, can't read. They force him to sign a confession. Off he goes to prison as a child. And he's not eligible to go before a parole board until he's 70 years old. Uh -huh. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but that's the system. And it's something that poor people of color know and get and that if you live and i live in princeton a privileged community like this you don't have a clue about and that's another reason for writing chris the last Pretty question more. i have for you is you know you risked your career to do the right thing losing your job at the new york times you've put your life at risk in war zones you know you've put yourself out there in, in the prison system and you know something that would be very difficult and frightening to a lot of people you really lived your values. What do you think is the responsibility of people to live their values in the world who want to change things for the better? Well, I do come out of a religious tradition and I don't you know, speak about it a lot, but it does inform the way I look at the world. And uh, 
and and that belief system says in essence this uh, articulated perhaps most eloquently by the great theologian James Cone, uh, that we are called to stand with the crucified of the earth, uh, no matter what the cost. It's certainly why I went into Sarajevo. I, I'm not going to pretend that there wasn't, what, were not other motives. Motives are always mixed, as Reinhold Niebuhr points out. None of us are pure. I had covered war at that point for many years. I was you know, addicted to the adrenaline rush of it. All of that is that dark side is always is there too. Uh, but I took the risks that I took um, because I was around immense suffering. Uh, and there is an understanding or should be that when you truly stand with the crucified or the oppressed, then eventually you're going to get treated like the oppressed. Uh, and that the Greeks write about it, actually. Uh, I think it's Aristotle. He writes about uh, that one must always build relationships with those who suffer or those who are oppressed. And he actually uses the word in Greek, contagion, that that creates a kind of contagion where you not only see that other person is human, but understand that under different circumstances, that could be you. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that that's key. And I think part of the, we'll go back to what we spoke about at the beginning, about building alliances with people who are organizing. Uh, that so often on the left, uh, oppressed people are an abstraction. And that's very dangerous um, because it, it leads to a kind of cynicism and even a kind of paternalism. Um, I lived in a house across the street from a housing project in Roxbury in Boston when I was at Harvard Divinity School. So I would commute to take my classes, but come back to the inner city where I ran a small church. Uh, and uh, listening to classmates at Harvard uh, talk about empowering people they never met. I always say that's where I learned to hate liberals. Um, we must build real relationships, and and those relationships uh, then empower us. I mean, uh, you know, Augustine said hope has two beautiful daughters: anger and courage. Anger at the way things are, and courage to see that they don't remain the way they are. And if you don't walk out of that prison system angry, if you don't walk away from Gaza, I spent many months of my life in Gaza angry. If you don't walk out of Sarajevo angry, then you don't have a heart. Uh, and, and I think that it's important for all of us to, no matter what the cost, to stand unequivocally with those our society is attempting to destroy to the point where e we are even willing uh, to accept that destruction ourselves. In Christian terms, that's called bearing the cross. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and, you know, I think it helps to understand how power works. Uh, they usually get us all in the end. Uh, but in, in, in that, in, there's a certain comfort in that. Uh, so I watched my own father, who was uh, involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. He was a vet. He fought in North Africa and uh, World War II. Um, he stood up uh, in the end for GBLTQ rights. My uncle was gay, so my father had a sensitivity to the struggle and pain of being a gay man in America in the 50s and 60s, and the church threw him out mm -hmm. uh, or pushed him out. Uh, and But that was, a t you know, you can't teach morality. You have to show it. Yeah. Uh, I always say when I went uh, into the New York Times, uh, I denounced the war uh, on Charlie Rose and all sorts of stuff, but then been booed off of a commencement stage at Rockford College and was and right wing media lynched me the way they did Jerry, my friend Jerry Wright, hour after hour after hour. Uh, Wall Street Journal wrote an editorial denouncing me, and I was given a formal written reprimand 
saying that I was no longer allowed to speak publicly about the war in Iraq. Uh, and I realized at that moment it became personal that I could pay fealty to my career and silence myself, but to do so would be to betray my father. And I couldn't do that. And I remember mm -hmm. articulating for the first time what it was that my father had given me, and that was freedom. I didn't need the New York Times. I did not need the imprintur of the New York Times to tell me who I was. I knew who I was. I was my father's son. Mm. Mm. Very powerful. Very powerful. A lot to reflect on and I think to really challenge ourselves with as we head into another year. Um, Chris, we are so grateful for your time and for your wisdom today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for doing it. Our pleasure. All right. So that was Chris Hedges. Um, really brilliant guy. Really thoughtful guy. Uh, like I said, I went down a rabbit hole of his interviews and lectures and whatnot and even debates. I watched him debate Sam Harris. Um and yeah, he's not, uh, he clearly thinks through these things uh, in a very detailed way. And so grateful for his time and uh, grateful he was able to share his perspective. He is an extremely courageous person and also an extremely independent minded person, you know, so which makes him a little bit hard to peg politically, you know, because he's like obviously on the left and, you know, very opposed to corporate media. He's very like, very much believes Trump is a real threat and a real danger and a and a proto fascist fascist as he said, but also doesn't go where that normally leads you, which is to say, well, listen, we may not like it, but you got to vote for the Democratic Party. Also, very independent minded on COVID. You know, I mean, obviously we got we got into a little bit of a back and forth on some of his political thoughts, but extraordinarily thoughtful and again very courageous person. I think. Well, yeah, one of the things uh, did you just say that he advocates suck it up and vote for Democrats? No, he does, the opposite I, I, Yeah, of okay, yeah. So that was one of the things I was trying to tease out there with the Biden question is, and I should have actually just asked it flat out like this, is are they equally bad? Is that your position, that they're equally bad? And um, to be fair to him, I don't think he would say they are equally bad, but I think he would say maybe it's like 2% difference or something like that. Yeah, um, I mean, we. I asked him, you asked him about, okay, here's some decent things Biden did. And I asked him about, OK, objectively, NLRB under Biden, way better than NLRB under Trump. And if we care about the labor movement, like that's a precursor to being being able to build worker power and fight back against corporations. And he acknowledges, yeah, that's better under Democrats, but it's not enough for me. And ultimately, if you want to fight, this was sort of what he articulated if you want to oppose fascists, the Democratic Party is just not an effective means of doing that. Right. And he said, like you said, he was like, well, it's just it's not enough. And then when I said, here's some good things Biden did. Can you name something good Biden did? He was like, well, sure. But then Trump also did good things, uh, you know, a, a few good things. And he said, yeah, there's more good things that Biden does. But, you know, to your point again, just not enough. So, uh, you know, I've argued this for a long time. But if you were you have to go on a case by case basis and look at the individual politicians in question. But, you know, if you're judging Donald Trump on a scale of zero to 100, he gets a grade of like 7%. And, you you know, maybe you judge somebody like Hillary Clinton, and maybe she gets a 21% or something like that, to which the rebuttal is, and it's a fair point, people say, well, that's both a failing grade, neither one of them are above 65. So like, you know, you're proving my point effectively. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. But it is also objectively true that 21 is mathematically higher than seven. So like both of those thoughts are true. And we need to be honest enough and nuanced enough and intelligent enough to admit that. And um, 
I think Chris uh, might put the onus in a slightly different place than I do, but I think generally speaking, we're in a similar position. Um, one of the other areas of, I would say I do disagree with him on this, is the idea of, well, what what should Bernie have done? Now, I'm not saying I don't have criticisms of Bernie, because as I said, I think he's a little bit naive about how power works, and I don't think he's anywhere near strong enough um, and aggressive enough. So I have very strong criticisms of Bernie. But um, the idea that, like, well, you know, you could have just, like, in 2016, just, like, launched a third party or run as an independent, and then, you know, as if that would have positive outcomes, even under a best-case scenario, best-case scenario, Bernie takes, like, 20% of the vote from Hillary as the Democratic politician because partisan brand loyalty in this country is very strong. Mm -hmm. So he takes 20% and then literally the entire dialogue for the next four years is Bernie Sanders is directly to blame for Donald Trump winning. And, you know, they already, it, to some extent or another, blamed him for Donald Trump winning. But you think it was bad then? It would be way worse if Bernie said, I'm going to run as a third party candidate and get 20% and take it from the Democrat and then have... Trump win. And so I actually think it would have been more counterproductive had Bernie done that. But, you know, having said all that, I do understand the instinct people have to want something like that, because the idea is like, well, they are. Hillary Clinton is unacceptable. Donald Trump is unacceptable. Like, well, what are we supposed to do? And it's like it, the thought is almost, well, if Bernie runs, even though we won't win because we won't. But if, Bern if Bernie runs in that scenario as an independent or whatever, who cares if he loses? Just, like, burn the whole fucking thing down. Like, that's kind of the idea. And I understand the instinct to want to go in that direction. I just think that if you think it through a little more, you realize it could be more counterproductive. I just, yeah, I don't see where it leads, right? Because he acknowledges, I mean, he's he worked with Ralph Nader. He acknowledges, like, it's impossible. A third-party candidate is not going to win. So the, the goal in his mind isn't like, you know, we're going to take the country by storm and you're going to win as a third party candidate. It's to make them afraid. But I don't know what happens then, you know, like well, see, but then what's the, the next step? Because as we were pointing to, there was kind of a trial run of this in 2016. Whether, I mean, it's absurd, the idea that Jill Stein caused Hillary Clinton to lose. But there are a lot of people who really believed that, including a lot of elites in the Democratic Party who actually believe that. So... They were scared. You know, the left sort of did the thing that they were supposed to do in, in walking out as delegates from the convention and all of that. But it actually moved the Democratic Party in a worse direction. It just so meant that they could demonize the left elements of the party and effectively push them out of the party rather than feeling any pressure to, like, moderate their positions on anything. Well, see, but that's the point I was trying to make to him is that the argument I always heard from advocates of this strategy is, listen, you vote for the Green Party. First of all, you get over 5%, you get matching funds. That's a win, period, which I agree with. That is a win. Mm -hmm. But let's say, you know, you get 10% or 15% or in an insane scenario, you go full Ross Perot and get 20% or something like that, right? The argument I always heard was, if you have 10%, if you have 20%, you're a force that they need to contend with. They can no longer dismiss you they have to bring you incorporate you into the system and listen to your concerns because now you have a block that's real but like you just said every single time this has happened and it's not like we haven't run third party candidates whether there was the reform party or the green party or the libertarian party or whatever every single time no matter what percentage they get whether it's zero percent or three percent or five percent they always turn around and blame you more and ostracize you more and point the finger at you more so in other words, it, it, I'm of the belief they're so 
decrepit and rotten and corrupt and disgusting and uh, and they're playing games and they're political and they're partisan that no matter what you do, they're going to p- point the finger at you and blame you. They're not going to try to incorporate you. So if that is the theory that I've heard from people, I would just say that particular theory is objectively incorrect. But to be fair to Chris, he didn't say that that was the plan. He was like, no, of course I know we're not going to win. And he was like, well, no, of course I know they're not going to incorporate, incorporate us, us. Or, or listen to us in any way. So, But then you come full circle to like, okay, then why do it? <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, because like, I mean, Ross Perot did run. He did run as a third party. Um, it was independent. He ran as, an as independent. independent. Yeah. And um, NAFTA still, <laughs> we still have NAFTA. So it's not like that worked to move elites off of their previous position. So, I mean, listen, the bottom line with this is I also like, I totally see the argument of they were never going to let Bernie win. You know, they throw up all these roadblocks. They make it nearly impossible to succeed. And and I understand where that comes from. And I also understand the critique of Bernie because I've had my own critiques of Bernie as well. But putting aside whether he was the perfect person or not, the fact of the matter is you did have, as you pointed out, Donald Trump come in and win the Republican nomination when they really didn't want him to, even though he ended up being perfectly safe for them and they co-opted him thoroughly. Um, And Bernie did come quite close. Uh, And if you do get someone who has some integrity into the presidency, they can do a lot of things. Just, Just as president, you have a lot of power and you can change the direction of the country. So um, I think it's, you know, obviously no path is is easy, straightforward. And there are great arguments, compelling arguments to make about why both end in defeat. But of the two, it seems like the most hopeful path is to, you know, have someone with integrity who's actually able to upset the apple cart in the Democratic Party. See, that, that was my biggest disagreement with him right there is because I do... Um, when you look, Bernie had next to no name recognition when he ran, when he launched his campaign in 2015 against Hillary Clinton. Hillary had a 60-point lead. Fast forward to the end of the race, he got 46% of the vote in the Democratic primary, and that was with all the, the fingers on the scale against him. They did effectively rig it against him. But the point about Trump is the overriding point, in my opinion, which is they could throw everything at you but the kitchen sink. If you overwhelm them, if Bernie got 60, 65% of the vote in the Democratic primary, they can't deny you. You have you take it over just like Trump took it over on the Republican side. So I think it's nihilistic, and I think it's defeatist for anybody who thinks, like, well, this is not possible and it can't happen. Oh, Chris, I, I don't think he believes that because his response when I brought that up was like, well— Okay, fair enough, but Bernie's not all. Bernie's all, not the guy, right? He's not all he's made up to be anyway, which is like okay, somewhat fair. I'm not sure I 100% agree with that, but I don't 100% disagree with it either. But like, it, it is definitely, definitely possible. And um, you know, it's just a shame. I think his 2020 campaign was worse than his 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it all comes back to him not having nearly as much balls as he needs and not being as aggressive as as he needs to be. Uh, it, just a couple things to to wrap up here. Um. One of the other things I thought was interesting is when I asked him the question about, look, bottom up, of course, plenty left wing movements go, you know, are are organic like that. But then top down also is kind of important, too. And I gave a couple examples of that. And his response was basically like, no, bottom up is like the only way. And I do find that I get that response a lot from people who are true lefties, like mm-hmm. left of me type lefties. And I have to say, I, I don't agree with that. I really do think you need both. And the best evidence I have to point to my conclusion is, well, we just 
saw a total bottom-up uh, approach with uh, the the post-George Floyd protests. Yeah. And what you got out of the completely bottom-up approach with no figurehead, no leadership, no channeling, no messaging, is you got defund the police, and then you got the popularity of that and the support of that movement absolutely plummeting and no policy change. So th this is something I do think lefties in general have to grapple with, is this notion that, like, just because you think you're on the right side of history and you generally mean well does not mean that, by definition, anything that comes out of your mouth is correct or, or popular or worth saying. So you still have to be intelligent and strategize, and you still need leadership. And unfortunately, on the left, the egalitarian sentiment and the democratic sentiment, small-D democratic sentiment, is so strong that yeah. they oftentimes totally reject the idea that anybody can be a leader under any circumstance. Yeah. I off, I off The way I think about it is this. I mean, human beings are wired to think in terms of humans and stories, and we may not like that that is the case, but I just think it's undeniable that that's the way that people are kind of wired. They're looking for... Who is the person that embodies this? Who is the articulator of those values? Who is the person who's sort of like inspiring and galvanizing and keeping all the oars rowing in one direction? And, you know, imperfect as Bernie Sanders certainly is, you can sort of see that on the left. I mean, when he was very clearly at the helm and this is the guy, and this is the leader of our thing. There was a lot more productive, <laughs> there were a lot more productive dialogues and a lot more solidarity and things were moving seemingly in a much better direction. And I also, listen, I'm sick of moral victories, but I do think probably the most profound contribution Bernie Sanders made to the public is he made people like me expect that, that you could do more than what had been offered by the Democratic establishment and created a space for a critique of the Democratic Party that, you know, didn't exist in a, a broad scale sort of in, you know, mainstream culture before him. And I think that that ultimately did matter. And that comes out of him as sort of like a figurehead and leader of the movement. So I tend to agree with you. Listen, it can't obviously be like just one dude or one woman top down. You have to have both. You have to have the person who meets the moment and the grassroots energy but I do think that just because of how human beings are wired, you kind of need that leadership figure. And to be fair to him and everybody who would agree with him that bottom-up is the only way to go, I understand another reason why you might feel that way, and it's because it's so easy that you have a charlatan at the top who doesn't oh, yeah. believe any of it. And Absolutely. then it's like, well, what do we just do here? We just Look waste our time and, effort and it's the wrong person. Right. So I, I, that's, a, that's an argument on his side, which I think is a totally fair response and critique. And I think and I, his— I think his argument, too, that it's like, you know, those usually men throughout history who ultimately write the history and then make put themselves at the center of it. I, I think that's fair to argue as well. Yeah. And you could even argue that's been done with the civil rights movement, how Malcolm gets a lot less, uh, you know, support than than Martin Luther King Jr. And it's because they would rather have this nonviolent message be pervasive so that they feel like, well, don't come for us with the pitchfork. See, Martin Luther King did it without the pitchforks. You know what yeah. I mean? So. Right. Anyway, uh, final point. Um, what did you make of his prostitution uh, response? Okay, so, yeah, I mean, that was one where we could have spent a whole other hour <laughs> getting into all of that. Um, I think it's hard to square uh, criminalizing prostitution with an opposition to the war on drugs. I mean, it seems to me like the path for both of these 
things is to have them legal and tightly regulated because there are activities that are going to happen anyway. And when you push them to the margins of society, when you push them to the black market, that's when you end up with trafficking. That's when you end up with, you know, over the top exploitation and abuse and women who have no option and are unable to leave. So I, you know, I'm not where he is on that issue. It's interesting to hear his perspective though. To be, And Chomsky shares his perspective, by the way, but to be fair, um, to him, he didn't say criminalize the women. The women. Right. He was yes. like, basically, I guess, criminalize whoever is soliciting the prostitution, right? Who's looking for the prostitute. Or the, the right. pimps and the johns, I think is what he and, said. Yes. Okay. All right. Correct. So, um, yeah, I mean, my response to that is similar to your response to that. When you look at uh, just outside of Las Vegas, they have um, basically legalized prostitution. And there's never been a transmission of an STD ever because it's tightly regulated. Uh, and you know, there are places where it's not legal taxed and regulated and there's widespread spreading of STDs. So it's, it's terrible for public health in that respect. And then also I do think there's sort of an underlying implication and assumption in his position and Chomsky's position, which is that, um, sex at its core, unless done with one who you really love, so on and so forth is somehow necessarily bad or inherently something to be ashamed of. And I just don't agree with that. I think that there are plenty of people. Are there people who are prostitutes and it's because they were traumatized in their childhood or they were effectively forced into it because of an economic situation? Yes, totally against that. And that's why you need to fix the system more generally. So you eliminate those people like that who get into the field. But are there people who like the question, the follow up question I asked him was to get at this point. Are there people who all things being equal, all things being relatively okay in a stable society that through their own freedom of choice, they are going to actively go into that field because they want to go into that field? The answer is yes. I think that's totally undeniable. And there are plenty of sex workers who would tell Noam Chomsky or Chris Hedges or anybody, no, I want to do this. And who the hell are you to tell me what I what I can and can't do? And so I just think it's too broad of a brush, this this idea and this assumption that like, um, it's something that if, if the economic situation was better, nobody would want to do that. Or if there was no exploitation, nobody would want to do that. It's like, well, no, sex is a tremendous driving force for human beings. I mean, Freud was basically 100%. He, he thought almost everything about human nature came back to sex. And so to deny that or act like um, there's there's nothing there, even if the economic ex- exploitation is missing, it's just, I, I, it's not true. And I think people should have the free choice to decide to do it if they want to. Well, it's it's a little paternalistic. Right. Right. Yeah. To, mm-hmm. And and listen, of course, of course, we're all on the same page with trying to create better conditions so that no one who would not want to go in that direction goes in that direction. Yeah. But uh, yeah. let's say you create that perfect or close to perfect society and you still have people who say, you know, I would I would go into sex work for, you know, a certain dollar amount of money. Do I want to make that illegal, make it not possible for them? No, I don't. Like, I, I don't pass a moral judgment on it, I guess, in that way, if people are truly in a position where they're freely making the choice. Right. Yeah. Now, he might argue, well, it's not possible to ever get to that position where they're freely making the choice. But then it's just an argument about whether or not that position is possible to get to. And I say I would say, of course, it's possible to get to that position. So, anyway. yeah, well, and also, I think you probably have people there now in a society that is far from perfect who are sex workers, but given the the landscape of their options, this is the option that they have chosen. So also, why do you want to take that option off the table then? Because the next best option, you know, that they may have freely chosen is in their mind worse. 
So, yeah. Well, there, and, and the other thing is there are sex negative feminists and there are sex positive feminists. And oftentimes the dialogue that you hear uh, on his side of the argument is almost like a complete and utter denial that there even are such things as sex positive feminists. And it's like, of course there are. You know, there are plenty of people looking in the eyes and say, I want to do this. Stop. You know what I mean? So, and they say sex work is, is work, so on and so forth. So, um, all disagreements aside, as yes. we just sort of hashed out here, I think Chris Hedges is a brilliant person. Oh, wonderful. Um, really that was enjoyed a the wonderful conversation. conversation. Yeah. yeah. And I hope you guys uh, did too. By the way, uh, support the show. You guys heard us talking about all of the algorithm nonsense and all the uh, really holding us back as much as possible in new media and independent media and alternative media. So uh, we really appreciate it for everybody who uh, supports the show, pay $5 a month and you get the video of the podcast and you get it for free. Well, wait, that makes no sense. You get the video of the podcast for the $5 a month <laughs> and then you could also get it for free in audio version only. My brain doesn't work and I have an IQ of seven. But uh, we appreciate all the people uh, who um, are subscribers and for everybody else, you're just sort of okay, but not, not as good as the subscribers. <laughs> um, also, this is our last episode of 2021 wait, um wait wait is it yes when it is this is. one dropping it's dropping as the last episode max alvarez is dropping the week before okay this is all being recorded before christmas just so everybody knows correct so yeah, that's um why i'm questioning it want to say happy new year to you guys thank you for supporting us this year um we launched almost now exactly a year ago and, you know, it seems like it's people have really enjoyed it and we've really appreciated all the all the support and enthusiasm. And it's been great personally having a space where we can have these like longer conversations and really dig in with people who we have a lot of respect and a lot of interest in. So thank you guys for helping to enable that and make that happen. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. All right. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>